what is truly a special day, isn't it? Every time we have time to gather together as God's people is special. We get to gather together corporately and lift up our, our hearts and our voices in songs of praise to our God and King for the great hope that we have. But we have set aside at this church, this time of year, a, a day, special day of remembrance, celebration, and worship for the resurrection of, of God's Son, the Lord Jesus, from the dead. There's another time of year when we set aside time as a special time of celebration when we focus on the, the greatest gift that was ever given when God gave His Son, Christ. He sent Him from heaven to earth to take on flesh, to live and die and rise again. We set aside that time in, in December and we set aside this time in the spring. But there is another day, another event, that deserves our consideration and our attention, but it doesn't get as much focus, though it should. And this event takes place on a hillside in Bethany. Warren Wiersbe, in his commentary on Luke, said this, For some reason, our Lord's ascension is not given the prominence in the church that it deserves. Think of what it meant to Christ, to return to heaven and sit on the throne of glory. Christ's ascension is proof that He has conquered every enemy and that He now reigns supreme. For that reason and many more, we turn our focus to that event this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 24. We're going to be looking at verses 50 through 53 this morning, and we're going to be talking about why Christ's ascension deserves our attention. And for those of you here visiting with us and think it's strange that I'm focusing on the end of Luke 24 and not the beginning, because that's normally where we go, right, in verses 1 through 12 or, or passages like it. The reason why is because we are ending our Easter sermon series. We've been spending four weeks in Luke chapter 24. So four weeks ago, we were looking at verses 1 through 12. I've known for a little while that we are going to end on this passage on Resurrection Sunday. And when I thought about it, I got really excited because the ascension is really the end of Luke's account of Jesus' resurrection. The empty tomb is the beginning of the last section of Luke's gospel. And remember, when the women see the empty tomb, they're confused. The disciples are, are, are doubtful, right? They still believe that Christ's body is, is somewhere. We learned that from the men on the road to Emmaus. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. When Jesus appears to them, he is supernaturally disguised. They don't recognize him. He asked what they're talking about, and they shared that while the women shared with them about the empty tomb and they saw the empty tomb, they did not believe that Christ was raised at that point because they said, we had hoped that he would have been the Messiah, the one sent to redeem Israel. And even when Christ appears to his disciples, they think he's a ghost. 
They think he's a spirit. They still doubt. It's at the ascension when they are finally seen clearly and understand Christ's person and work, the work he was sent to accomplish. It is on that hillside when they're finally able to put two and two together. It's there where they are no longer doubtful and depressed, but instead they are worshipful and filled with joy. So we're going to examine this last paragraph in Luke's gospel, examining the event, then the response, and lastly, the significance of Christ's ascension. And my prayer for us today, believers, is that we would all leave here today going out from this place the way Christ's disciples left that place where he was taken up. Let me first read the account for us and then we'll examine this story. Luke chapter 24 Verses 50 through 53. Hear the word of the Lord. And he led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Let's pray together. Father, what we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. And what we are not, please make us. For Christ's sake and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's begin with the event of the ascension. This is the last paragraph of Luke's gospel account. This is the end of Luke's gospel, and it's important to point out that Luke ends in the way he begins, in a very similar way. Luke's gospel begins with Jesus coming from heaven to earth. It ends with Jesus going from earth to heaven. It begins with Jesus condescending down to us and ends with him ascending up to his Father in heaven. It begins with incarnation and ends with exaltation and coronation. Begins with expectation and ends with consummation. Begins with the Son of God being born of a virgin to die at Calvary and ends with the Son of God being the firstborn from the dead, raised up never to die again. It begins with promises made and ends with promises kept. It begins with praise and worship and ends with praise and worship. Begins in a temple with the hope of Christ and ends in a temple with the hope of Christ. It is fitting that at Christmas this year we looked at the beginning of this story in Luke 1 and 2 and focused in on the beginning of Luke's story and here we find ourselves at Easter at the end in Luke 24 and throughout the rest of this year and the next and possibly the next we're going to be talking about all that's in between as we go through Luke's gospel. Luke here explains this incredible event in very very simple language. 
He, he gives very minimal, plain, straightforward description of what is taking place here. We are told here, Jesus, after spending an extended period of time instructing his disciples on his great person and work, taking them through the scriptures, instructing them on what has been fulfilled through the life he lived and the death he died and through his resurrection and commissioning them to go and be his witnesses and make disciples. And after calling for them to stay and wait in Jerusalem to wait on the Holy Spirit so they'll be empowered on high by him and go out and accomplish this work, we are told after that, Jesus led them to Bethany and he lifted up his hands and blessed them while he is blessing them. We're told he is taken up right off of that mount and taken out of sight. Unbelievable, right? This spot in Bethany on the Mount of Olives, we learn that in Acts chapter 1, verse 12. Luke gives us the story twice as bookends at the end of, of uh, Luke and the beginning of Acts, and we'll talk about why he does that in just a moment. But he tells us where it takes place, and this is an important place in God's kingdom story. Bethany is like a, the suburb, a suburb of Jerusalem. If you go east from Jerusalem, you arrive at the Mount of Olives, and just a little to the south, a little over the edge of the Mount of Olives, is Bethany, and that's where this takes place. They would have been on the back slope of that hill on the Mount of Olives near Bethany, and there Jesus does something very important. Before he is taken up, he lifts up his hands and he blesses them. So before he parts from them, he blesses them. That is very significant that the last thing God the Son does before he leaves them is he blesses them because God's story of redemption is a story that is filled with stories of God blessing his people. When he first created Man and woman, we're told in Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, verse 28, and God blessed them. Genesis 12, 1. God says to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Blessings upon Adam. Blessings upon Abraham. Blessings upon the nation. God blesses through the seed of the woman. Blesses through the great nation of Father Abraham. Blesses through the kingdom of David and blesses through the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, King Jesus. This book, God's Word, is all about God blessing the nations through the person and work of His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus reminds His followers of that here, before He has taken from them, that in and through Him they are blessed. Through the work that He has accomplished, they are blessed. He reminds them, of the fact that he is the fulfillment of the promise made to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15 when they're told that the seed of the woman will come and crush the serpent. Jesus is the fulfillment of that. He is the blessing to the nations from the line of Abraham, the suffering servant from Isaiah, God's forever king in the line of David. 
Jesus reminds his followers that in him they are blessed. And believers, in him you are blessed. That's a great message in and of itself right there. You are blessed in Christ. Wonderful message of Easter. You're blessed in Christ. Listen to how Paul put it, Ephesians chapter 1. God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Are you counting the blessings here? Just count them out. Even as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Believers, we have all that we could ever want or need in Jesus Christ. He has secured for us a place and is currently preparing for us a place through Him. We have been brought in to the family of God. We are sons and daughters of God through Christ. We have redemption through His blood, forgiveness of sin according to the riches of His grace which He has lavished out upon us. We are blessed through the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you are trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, you have been blessed. And those on that hill in that day, they came to that realization that they had been blessed as well, which is why they left that place filled with joy. Notice another important detail, the manner in which Christ leaves them. Notice this. He is taken up out of sight into the heavens in a glorified body. Now that is different from the way he came down. He came down in spirit and took on flesh. We're told that in John 1.14. The word became flesh. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. But he, he left different than the way he came. He returned to heaven, truly God and truly man. That is important. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ's resurrection and ascension secures for us our future resurrection and glorification. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Because he was raised, so will we one day be raised back up. Because he dwells physically and spiritually at the right hand of the Father on high, so will we one day live in his presence forever with his people, those of us in Christ. His resurrection and ascension, it guarantees our future resurrection and glorification. Thabiti Anabwile says this in his commentary on Luke. Jesus carried our humanity into glory. He rose in the same body that he showed to his disciples. MacArthur says this. Jesus took his glorified humanity out of the grave and took his glorified manhood straight into heaven all the way back to where he'd come from. And this is proof that heaven is a place which accommodates glorified humans. Amen? Boy, that is a reason to rejoice right there. No wonder the disciples left on this day rejoicing and 
filled with, with joy. Believers, may we leave this place in the same way today, filled with joy because of the hope that we have in Christ. Do you realize that because Christ has been raised, you will be also who are in Him? Do you realize that because Christ is seated in the heavenlies, you will one day be where He is? Hallelujah. He is risen. He has ascended. Praise the Lord for that. When you leave this place today, you go out, spend time with friends and family, take time to praise God for the hope that you have in Him. In Christ, you are blessed. In Him, you are redeemed through His blood, forgiven of your trespasses, adopted into His family, and seated in the heavenlies with Him. Paul, again, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, says, beginning in verse 4, first, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, made us alive together with Christ, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that's the event of the ascension. Now let's talk about the response to the ascension. Notice Luke shifts in the text here from talking about the actions of Christ to the response of the disciples. It's an important shift. In verses 50 and 51, let's read it again. Notice the focus is Jesus and his actions. And he, that's Jesus, led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. That's all about Jesus there, right? He, his, he, he, he. But notice the shift, verse 52. And they worshipped him, and they, not stated but implied, returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they, not stated but implied, were continually in the temple blessing God. I love this, and the reason why I love this is because it's obvious that these followers of Jesus have been changed. You see, in the past, news of Christ's departure brought confusion and sadness and fear to the disciples. Matthew 16, for example, Jesus is telling his disciples of his death and resurrection, and Peter is not filled with great joy. He is greatly confused, and he thinks Jesus is too, so he pulls him aside to rebuke him. Remember that? You got to hold Peter. He said, far be it from you, Lord. Peter saw no benefit to a crucified Messiah. Surely not. This will never happen to you. To which Jesus kindly replies, Get behind me, Satan. That's a rebuke right there. John 14, Jesus is telling his disciples of his departure, and he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. You know why he said, Let not your hearts be troubled? Because their hearts were troubled. Yeah, it doesn't take a Bible scholar to fill that, figure that out, right? Don't be troubled. And then he tells them that he is going to prepare a place for them. In John 20, after the, the resurrection, Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. She tries to cling to him, I believe, in, in desperation, possibly with the feeling of, I, I lost you once, I don't want to lose you again, to which 
Jesus responds to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. The men on the road to Emmaus, we looked at that a couple of weeks ago. Remember, Jesus appears to them, but they don't know it's Jesus. And he asked them about what they're talking about. And when they talk about Jesus' death, it said when they, when they thought on it, they stood still looking sad. But on the backside of the Mount of Olives in Bethany, these followers of Jesus have a different response. Why? What, what has changed here? Well, they finally get it. They, they understand. They, they know why Christ has come. They understand the work he came to accomplish. They believe he is returning. They know he is coming someday soon in the presence and power of the Spirit. And they know that he is returning the way that he left them in body and spirit to rule and reign for all eternity. We're told that in Acts chapter 1. You'll read that this week in your scripture reading. They're promised right then and there of Christ's return, and they, they finally get it. They, they understand. Trent Butler says this in, in his commentary on Luke. Listen to this. He says this. They no longer grieve. Jesus' final disappearance does not bring mourning and sadness. It brings joy and worship. The church has heard the resurrection story. His followers have seen the resurrected Lord and they believe and they can tell the story from Scripture. And the reason why is because Jesus told it to them. MacArthur again, when explaining the change in Christ's disciples, says this, they now understood. School was out permanently. They had their degrees. They were done. They understood the Old Testament. They understood the Messianic references. They understood who Christ was, what He had done, the necessity of His suffering and death, as well as His triumph and exaltation. They knew that the salvation He had come to provide had been accomplished. They knew what the Bible prophesied about the Messiah. They knew He had risen from the dead, and that guaranteed them their own resurrection. How did they respond to that news? The way only a rational person would, with worship. They exploded in worship. How long did they worship? Was it just sort of a, a, a mountaintop camp experience that was over before it got started? We're told that they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and they worshiped continually. Notice Luke doesn't say they moseyed on back somewhat happy. He says they returned with great joy. Listen, happiness is cheap. It can be had in the most pointless of things. I can be happy with an ice cream cone after my millet jalapeno tree. I often am. But it's over before it starts, especially when I eat it. Right, girls? Yeah. It's cheap. It doesn't last. Joy is lasting. And it costs God to provide it for us. It cost him Christ, but it lasts. And notice how it lasts. We are told they were continually in the temple blessing God. Now, notice that word continually. You know, I, I looked that word up. I really did in the Greek. You know what it means? 
continually. That's exactly what it means. It means always. When used in reference to the temple and blessing God, it means the disciples were always there and they were always doing it. They were always in the temple, always blessing God. Why? Because they had encountered the risen Christ. They had been forgiven of their sin. They had been restored to a right relationship with the living God. Now, does this mean they never went on and, or, or had any hardships in life? No, of course, read the book. They did, but watch this. This is key. The hardships they faced in life did not compare to the hope they had in Christ. That is important. The hardships they faced in life did not compare to the hope they had in Christ. And believers, do you realize that the same is true for you? Have you ever been talking with someone going through a dark, difficult storm and they respond with, you know, I just don't feel like going to church today. I'm not in the mood to worship. I, I, I don't feel like praying. I'm not in the mood for singing. I can't bring myself to fellowship with other believers. I know my, my toes are sore as well, okay? We've been there. But listen, when we get there, we are believing the lie that our hardships in life are greater than our hope in Christ. And it's a lie. It is a flat-out lie. It's not true. We learn that from Christ followers. Believers, when's the last time you took time first just to worship God for the hope you have in Jesus? When's the last time you, you, you took time to tell yourself that the hardships in this life do not compare to the hope that you have in Christ. When's the last time you preached that to yourself until your heart believed it? When's the, when's the last time you entered into this place or a place like it with great joy because of the hope you have in Christ and the life you get to live in Him? When's the last time you delighted in worship not because your favorite song was played or your favorite person showed up but simply because you're a child of the King? You don't need more than that. That's your motivation. May we leave this place today, no matter what we're going through with this perspective, that the trials in life do not compare to our hope in Christ. And may we leave worshipful with great joy in our hearts. Let's end by discussing the significance of of the ascension. Now this point here could really be a sermon in itself. I'll spare you from that, okay? We could really just break this off and do a separate study just on this alone, and I mean it. Sometimes when pastors say that, they don't have any more to say about it, but I, I mean, <laughs> I do have more to say about this, okay? And I and, uh, wish we did, but we don't have time to go as deep as I would like Again, the Bidi Anyabwile says this in his commentary on Luke. While commenting on these verses, he says, while these last few verses are deceptively simple, in these verses are volumes of theology. Very true. 
few points I want you to consider before we end on the significance of Jesus' ascension and why this event is important and why it deserves our attention. First, because it marks the completion of Christ's work of salvation. When Jesus returns to the right hand of the Father on high, we're told in Hebrews that he takes a seat in the heavenly throne room. Now that posture is very, very important. We learned about this when we, we studied through the book of Hebrews. I know you've slept since then, but listen, in, in, in Hebrews we're told that Christ is there before the Father as our great and perfect high priest. He is forever there for us on our behalf, and we are told that he is seated in the old tabernacle and later in the temple. You know, there were no seats for the priests. There was a mercy seat, within the Holy of Holies, and no priest would dare enter into that place and prop himself up there. He wouldn't make it out alive anyways. No seats. You know why? Because the priest's work in the Old Testament was never finished. Sacrifice upon sacrifice upon sacrifice. The sacrifices showed God's people their sinfulness and need for salvation, but could not provide forgiveness of sin and access to God. I love the old hymn by Isaac Watts. Not all the blood of beasts in that hymn are these lyrics. Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. So true, Jesus and his work are different. They're better. He is our great high priest, our perfect high priest who offered a one-time sacrifice for all time by laying his perfect life down. And we're told he took it up again, ascended into heaven, and took his seat at the Father's right hand, signifying to us that the work that the Father sent Christ to do is finished. In him, our place in glory is kept Forever in Him, our future is sure. He is seated. Second, the ascension marked Jesus' exaltation and coronation. After Christ's great humiliation at Calvary, Christ brought about His great exaltation. Paul talks about that in Philippians 2. God highly exalted Christ and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The ascension marked Jesus' exaltation and coronation. Third, the ascension marked Jesus' triumph over Satan. We're told again, Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman will crush him. 1 John 3.8, we're told that Christ has come to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus' ascension marks the beginning of this great work and the beginning of the end for our great enemy. In Hebrews 2.14, we're told, through death Christ destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. His ascension marked the completion of this great work. Fourth, the ascension marked the end of Jesus' earthly ministry and the beginning of the earthly ministry of the Holy Spirit. 
That's why Luke ends with this event in his gospel and begins with this event in the book of Acts. The gospel of Luke is about Jesus' earthly ministry. Acts is about the work of the Holy Spirit through the church, applying the completed work of the Lord Jesus Christ to his people, advancing his gospel, growing his church, advancing his kingdom. For that great work to take place, remember we spent two years in Acts talking about that great work of the Spirit. For that great work to take place, Jesus had to suffer, die, rise again, and return to the Father's right hand on high. He told them that in John 16, beginning in verse 7. He says this, It is to your advantage that I, that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. In the passage we studied last week in Luke 24, Jesus appears to the eleven and he tells them to stay and wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, for the Holy Spirit. He tells them to, to wait. After commissioning them, he doesn't tell them to go. He says, wait until you're empowered on high by the Holy Spirit and then go out and be my witnesses and make disciples. And this work, the ascension, it finishes off Christ's earthly ministry and begins the coming and in power of the Holy Spirit in that work through the church. Fifth and finally, the ascension of Christ marked the end of Christ's first coming and, hallelujah, the guarantee of his second coming. Luke tells us in Acts that when Jesus is taken up out of their sights, angels appear to them as they're looking up and promises that he is returning the same way he went. This event reminds us that Christ is returning like he left someday soon. We don't know when that day is going to be. That someday might be today, so we got to be ready. That's what I want to leave you with today. Are you ready? Are you ready for that day? Christ is returning. It's crystal clear in Scripture. He's returning for His bride, for His church, to bring her, His people, into glory. But we also learn in Scripture that He is also returning to bring judgment for the non-believer. The one who came to save is returning to judge. There is a future day of judgment coming for the non-believer and the question for you today, the most important question you will ever answer in life is are you ready for that day? It's closer now than when you came in. It's uncertain to us when that day will be. But it is appointed, and it is sure, and it is coming, and we have to be ready. Are you ready? Here's how you can be ready. you got to recognize that you're a sinner in need of this great rescue. The fact that Christ came from heaven to earth, took on flesh, emptied himself, humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, is because we're in need of rescue. The greatest rescue plan that's ever happened. Christ came to rescue us from sin. For us to be rescued, we have to see our sinfulness and our need for that rescuer. He came 
He lived, died, rose again to bring us back into a right relationship with God through him. He came to do what Adam failed to do, what man could never do because of sin. He lived the perfect life, died as our perfect substitute and sacrifice, and he rose again so that if we would forsake our sin and look to him and trust in him alone for salvation, we could be forgiven of sin and restored to a right relationship with the living God. Most wonderful story. That is absolutely true. Through Christ, we can move from being guilty in the courtroom to being in the living room of the Father, adopted into his family and secured forever. How awesome is that? Through faith in Christ alone, you can be restored. You can be forgiven. You can be saved. You can be secure. I pray that you would give your life up and over to Jesus today if you're not trusting in him. Make him Lord and be saved. Let's pray.